Welcome to the Disciple Dare, a four-week series to challenge you to discover what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. More info on the Disciple Dare can be found at ViennaSDA.org. Pastor Jennifer Deans shows you through stories from the Bible how living the dare will give you hope in troubled times and joy in life. In this message, Man of Mud and Metal. There's a knock at the door, and groggily, Daniel rubs his eyes, and as he goes to the door, still in his pajamas, there's Ariok, and Ariok doesn't appear to be his normal cheerful self, and so Daniel's like, hey, buddy, what's up? Um, and Ariok's like, um, well, can you get um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for me? I need to take you downtown. Well, why? What, what are we doing? Well, I kind of, I kind of have to kill you guys this morning. What? You guys? What? No, 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 no. That's that's just not right. Um, I that. What are you talking about, Ariok? What is, what's going on? Well, you see, um, the king, the king had a strange dream last night. What do you mean the king had a strange dream? Well, I was there. It was really weird. I happened to be on duty that night. You know, last night in the palace, and. All of a sudden, the king is up, and he's roaming the halls, and he, he finds me. I happen to be the first person he finds. And he says, um, I need you to go get all the wise men, the enchanters, the sorcerers, everybody who knows anything about anything. I need them here, and I need them now. And I wasn't about to question the king. It was dark 30 in the middle of the night, but the king is king, and you know what crossing the king can get you. And so I went, and I started rounding them up, and they were a lot more groggy than you were. And so we showed up. And I followed them into the king's bedroom because he was now sitting in his bed. And then he'd get up and he'd pace back and forth. And then he'd sit back down. And then he'd pace. And once everybody, or at least the majority of them, had assembled, he said, I had a really, really strange dream last night. Really strange dream. Um, I need to know what it means. Everyone's like, yes, king. We shall tell you what it means. He says, all right, um, I need you to tell me the dream, and then I need you to tell me what it means. And there was kind of like a, maybe it's really late in the middle of the night, and the king doesn't know what he just said. And so one of the brave ones, the one of the brave wise men says, mm, excuse me, king, we would love to tell you what your dream means. We have multiple ways of finding out for you, but please share with us what your dream is, and then we will be able to tell you what it means. And the king says, no. Uh-uh-uh. I see what you're trying to pull on me. I see what you're trying to, you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. You're trying to trick me. No, I want you to tell me what the dream means. And by the way, if you don't tell me the dream and what it means, you're all dead. I'm going to tear you limb from limb and your wives and your kids. And we're going to burn down your houses I mean it. Tell me my dream. <laughs> and Ariak looked at Daniel and said, Listen, I, I just, I'd never heard anybody say anything. Um, the king had never demanded something so crazy. Usually he's a little crazy, but not usually that crazy. I mean, who in the world can tell the king his dream? And as I was thinking this in my head, one of the wise men speaks up and says, um, King no man alive could possibly tell you your dream. Only the gods could do that. The gods don't live with men. 
And the king, at that point, you could see he just got angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he blew up in a fit of rage and said, fine, you're all dead. Every single one of you, by tonight, every single one of you better be dead. And he looked at me and said, Ariok, do it now. And so, so that's why I'm here, Daniel. Can you, can you please get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for me? Sorry, buddy, I kind of liked you. Daniel looks at Ariok and says, um, hey, can, I, can you take me to the king? You know, going to the king without being called, that's a pretty risky thing. Daniel looks at him and says, come on, man. What's he going to do, kill me? And Ariok's like, I, I guess you have a point, but I'm not going in with you because I don't want to be part of that crowd. And so Ariok takes Daniel to the king, and Daniel slowly pushes open the bedroom door, and he says, <clears throat> excuse me, King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, still steaming from before. I need to know what that dream means. I can't, why couldn't they tell me they're, they're all liars, they're all fakes? And he's just ranting and raving. And Daniel's like, excuse me, sir, king. And he stops and he says, um, hi, I'm Daniel. Um, the king rages at him. So you think you can tell me what my dream is? And Daniel's like, um, no, but I've come to ask for a little more time. What do you need time for so you can go make up a dream and think you're going to pass it by me? Um, King, you want to know, right? Just give me a little bit more time, and I may be able to help you. And so, for some reason, the king says, fine. And so, Daniel exits very gracefully and turns around and runs as fast as he can. And when he gets home, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abendo, they'd heard some of what had happened at the door, and they were wondering where he went, and so he tells them the whole story. Listen, the king had a dream last night. He wants to know what it is, and if we don't tell him what it is and what it means, we're all dead. He gave us a little bit more time. Let's pray. Let's ask the God to be merciful on us. Let's ask him. And so all three of um, his friends kneel down with Daniel. And as they're praying, they're pleading out their hearts. They're saying, God, we're in a captive land. We're in a strange place. We want to show your power. Can you please reveal to us? And as they're praying, as they're taking turns, each one individually, and then some all four at the same time, pleading their hearts to God, Daniel suddenly falls into a trance. And the other three keep praying, God, I believe you're answering our prayers. And Daniel's in a trance, and as he's in the trance, they're watching, and they can see he is seeing something. And when Daniel wakes up from this trance, he starts praising God. He starts singing. He says, God is good. He is so amazing. He showed me the dream. And not only did he show me the dream, but he showed me the interpretation. God is so good. Get Ariok. Go get Ariok. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ran and got Ariok. And they're like, Ariok, Daniel saw the dream. He knows what it is. Ariok's like, no, man, that's, really? Daniel, Daniel's just, he, no, Really? And so Ariok runs back, and he takes Daniel, and he goes running to the king. And this time, he's not scared to walk before the king. And he walks, and he says, King, I have found somebody who can tell you your dream. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar looks at him, still a little irritated. So you think you can tell me my dream? Daniel says, no. And as he says that, the king is about to start his rage again. And Daniel jumps in quickly and says, but there is a God in heaven who can tell you your dream. O king, as you were laying in your bed, as the sleep was falling on your eyes, suddenly there was a great and fierce and scary image that came out of nowhere, and it was towering in the sky. And this image had a beautiful head of gold that gleamed, and the head of gold was beautiful. And right beneath the head of gold, there was chests and arms of silver, And as the king's listening, he's like, right so far. And after the chest and arms of silver, there was thighs of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And as you were watching in your dream, the image is standing there and it's towering above you. Suddenly, out of nowhere, out of a mountain comes a huge rock that no hand could have thrown. And as you're watching, it strikes the base of the image and the image powderizes and dust goes and it settles on the whole earth. O king, the God of the universe wanted to show you what would happen throughout the rest of history. King Nebuchadnezzar's like, yeah, that was my dream. Daniel, tell me what it means. Tonight we're talking about Daniel's dream. There's a few things I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. There's a few things that I want to just go over with you. Daniel chapter 2, in the Bibles that you have here, it's page 711. Daniel chapter 2. This is a pretty interesting story. If I hadn't read it from the Bible, I might not have believed it. There's no one on earth, like the sorcerers, the magicians, the wise men were telling the king, there's no one on earth who demands somebody else tell them their dream. Why in the world... Would King Nebuchadnezzar demand this? If we look in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such a disturbing dream that he couldn't sleep. He called his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Does anywhere in that passage say that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream? I'd grown up thinking when I'd heard the story that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his dream. How many of you guys have woken up after having a dream and it's like on the tip of your tongue and it was either a good dream or a bad dream, but you just can't quite remember what it was, but you try to go back to sleep so you can get back into the dream? I've done that quite a few times. And I grew up thinking that that's what was happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He had this dream that was somehow puzzling him, and he he just needed to know what it was. He needed the dream to finish because something had gone on and he couldn't quite remember. But as I was reading and as I was studying Daniel chapter 2, nowhere does it say that King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember his dream. So why is it that he is demanding such an impossible feat from the Mugitna? 
the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Look with me down to verse 8 and 9. Daniel chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. says, The king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time, because you know I am serious when I say, If you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I will know that you can tell me what it means. Nebuchadnezzar, as he's laying on his bed, he has this dream, and somehow, within his spirit, within his heart, he knows this is not just another dream because I ate some bad beans last night. This is not just something because, you know, there's some weird images that I saw last night or the story someone was telling me before. This is important. And he knew that he needed to know what it really, really meant. And so he he looks at the wisest people in his entire kingdom. He calls the wise men, he calls magicians. What magicians would do is they would take the liver of a cow and they would cut it in half. And then they would ask it questions. And as they're asking it questions, they would drip oil and water onto the liver. And then they would study the patterns that came out in the oil and the water and the blood on the liver. And from this, they could tell you the answer to your questions. And the king probably wasn't so sure that oil and water on a calf liver was going to work. And so he was somehow doubting the magicians. Well, then you have the astrologers. The astrologers would go out and they would look at the night sky. And as they're looking at the night sky, they would see patterns in the stars. And they would see how the stars align today. And from that, they would tell you your future. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite trust that the stars had given him the dream. He knew that there was something bigger, something better than the stars. And so he looks at the sorcerers. What the sorcerers would do was they would sit around and they would start having seances where they would communicate with the spirits of the dead. Nebuchadnezzar somehow in his spirit knew that it wasn't the dead who is going to be able to answer his questions. And so he makes it so hard because he needs to know that these people are legit because somehow he knows that this is important. This is real and it's important and I can't risk being tricked by it. And so he makes it impossible. So how does Daniel go about telling the future, telling the king's dream? What does he do? Does he use oils and waters or seances or look at the stars or maybe a deck of cards? What does Daniel do in order to be able to give the king what he's asking for? Was Daniel any better than the rest of the wise men? If we look to Daniel 2 verse 30, it tells us, Daniel says this himself, And it's not because I'm any wiser than anyone else that I know the secrets of your dream but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. So it's not because Daniel's wiser, but it's because God revealed it to him. Because in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, something just isn't right. He's got to know. And so we look, what is Daniel's method for discovering the future? For discovering what God had showed Nebuchadnezzar? In Daniel 16, or chapter 2, 16 and 17, 
It says, Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. And he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men in Babylon. Daniel has something that the rest of the wise men didn't have. Daniel at this time was probably between 15 and 19 years old. He's a very young man. The other wise men would have been wise, and age back then was a really good thing. So the older you were, the wiser you were. So we have a teenager pitted against the wise men. We have people who are good at their craft, who are good at their arts, who've been studying it for a long time. And Daniel, who's a captive in a foreign land, coming. And what does he have? He has prayer. Daniel and his friends get together and they pray. And as they're praying, God reveals to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. Now, why in the world would God give Nebuchadnezzar a dream? Was he the king of Jerusalem? No. Jerusalem was God's city, and Nebuchadnezzar had actually a few years before had just totally demolished and destroyed Jerusalem. So it wasn't that he was the king of Jerusalem. What credentials was it that Nebuchadnezzar had that made God want to communicate with him? Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the then-known world, and God wanted to let the world know that God was in control. And so as Daniel is sharing with the king what the interpretation of his dream is, He is also sharing with us God's plan for the future. As we look and we see Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 on the next page, Daniel looks at the king, actually starts at the bottom of that page. It says, Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty and power, strength and honor. He has made you ruler over the inhabitants of the world. And has even put wild animals and birds under your control. You, O king, are the head of gold. You, O king, are the head of gold. So God starts with the present. He doesn't go back and say, by the way, before you this happened and that happened and this happened too. God starts with the present and he says, you are the head of gold. You are the most beautiful, the most wealthy king. You are the top of the statue. And if we look at Babylon, Babylon had some of the seven wonders of the world. Their hanging gardens are to this day marveled at. In the temple of Marduk, which was one of the gods of Babylon, the entire temple outside was tiled with blue glazed tiled, and inside it had 18 tons of gold in it. Babylon was impressive to see, to the eye, to everybody who was there. At those times, they didn't have cities the size that we have them. Athens around that time was probably about um, four miles across, and Rome was six miles across. And not only that, but Rome had the most impregnable walls. It was said that Rome could not be defeated because their walls were so thick that three chariots could ride side by side around the entire city's walls. Babylon boasted that they would never fall because they had a 20-year food supply and the Euphrates River ran right through the middle. And because of that, they they were unstoppable. 
And so as Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he's laying it on thick. You, O king, are the head of gold. You have sovereignty and power. Even the wild animals are under your control. And Nebuchadnezzar's going, yeah, that's true. No one's going to stop me. And then uh, Daniel does a really dangerous thing. In verse 39 it says, But after your kingdom comes to an end, What? My kingdom comes to an end? You want to know what it means, right, king? I guess so. Well then, after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise and take your place. Now, what kingdom is that? Can history substantiate that Babylon fell and that another kingdom came in its place? Yeah? In fact, one of um, Nebuchadnezzar's descendants, King Belshazzar, was so cocky, thought he was so good, that... um, there was armies outside laying siege to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, you know what? Cyrus can do whatever he wants to out there. I don't care. We're impregnable. We have a 20-year food supply. The Euphrates River flows right through, and there's nothing in the world they can do. And so what he does, like every good king when he's being sieged, he sets a war plan, right? No, Daniel chapter 5 tells us That instead of setting a war plan, King Belshazzar goes and he calls as many people as he possibly can. And he throws the biggest party in the world. And as they're drinking and getting drunk and people are there and the wine is flowing and the food is flowing. You know, the king says, oh, let's make this party really cool. Hey, um, why don't you go get those really cool gold goblets that we got from the Jews temple in Jerusalem? Those would be really neat. And so the king goes, and he gets the holy golden vessels. And he starts pouring wine in them and giving them to all his guests to drink from. And they're drinking, and they're having a heyday. And all while this is happening, during their long party, Cyrus, a few miles up the road, has his armies digging. And they reroute the Euphrates River, and Cyrus's army marches in to Babylon during King Belshazzar's party through the river gates that were open and conquers Babylon without even a fight. In Daniel's lifetime, Daniel begins to see how God knew what he was saying. He goes from the king the head of gold, to the Medes and the Persians that take over next. And they're silver. They're pretty impressive, but they're not nearly as impressive. Now, to show that God knew what he was talking about even before this, will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. That's page 558. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. You there? Kevin shared with me that I was going too fast the last night. So let me know when you've got the verses. Yeah. Isaiah 45, verse 1 says, Isaiah 45, verse 1, it's page 588. 
It says, this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened and never shut again. Isaiah was written about 150 years before Cyrus was born. And God prophesied in Isaiah not only the name of the king that was going to overthrow Babylon, but his method. He said the fortress gates would not be shut before Cyrus. And Cyrus marched into Babylon on the riverbed through the gates of the river that were opened. God knew what he was doing. And in Daniel's lifetime, he sees this transition of power. And as Daniel is sitting there and he's talking to the king, as he's telling him, So we have the head of gold, O king, and you are the head of gold. And God is telling you what history is going to do. After the head of gold, there is going to be another kingdom, not quite as good as yours. He earned a few brownie points there. They are going to rule. And after them, after them, will come another kingdom. Will you turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, verse 39. That's page 712. Daniel 2, verse 39. And keep your finger there because we're going to be going back there a lot. Daniel 2, 39 says, and it's the last part of 39. It says, after that kingdom has fallen, yet, an, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Now, how many of you guys know history? What happened after the fall of the Medes and the Persians? Do you know what what? happened historically? Alexander the Great. Exactly. Turn to Daniel chapter 8, verse 21. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel has quite a few prophecies, and we're going to talk about some other ones in the near future. And they all seem to be saying the same thing over and over and over again. They're talking about the future, about how God predicts the world. He's just telling it in slightly different ways to get different points across. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 says... The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. So Daniel himself, years before Alexander the Great, is told that the first king is going to be this large horn that kills and tramples people. And Napoleon, Alexander the Great, he was so... Was it Alexander the Great? Yeah, Alexander the Great. He, he marched across the then-known world, and he was going to take it by storm. And in fact, even though Greek was represented by bronze, one of the things that Alexander's army was represented by was they were one of the first armies to have bronze shields. So God in history, God tells Daniel, and he tells the king of Babylon, long before it happens, what is going to happen in history? First King Nebuchadnezzar, you're ruling the world. After you, the Medes and the Persians are going to take over. After them, the Greeks are going to take over. Then in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, it says, The following kingdom, there will be, uh, following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. Historically, What happened after the Greek Empire? The Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is one of the cruelest empires to have ruled. 
they did horrible, hideous things. They ruled out of fear. Their iron crushed people, and they went as far as the then-known world. They were strong and powerful and mean. And during the Roman Empire, that's when Jesus lived, and it was one of the largest empires for more than 500 years it ruled. And so as Daniel is talking about history, he takes them from, he's talking about the then-known world. He takes them from Babylon. Then he takes them to the Medes and the Persians, and then to the Greeks. And then he takes them to Rome. And after Rome, there's still another kingdom. Daniel chapter 2.41 says, The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided like iron mixed with clay. It will have some of the strength of iron, but but while some parts of it are as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. The mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other throughout, through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. What happened after the Roman Empire? Does another huge empire come and destroy this mean, vast empire? They were conquered by the Germanic tribes, um, and there were ten of them. Six of the, um, three of them quickly died off and became extinct. But the Alemannis settled in what is now Germany. The Burgundians settled in what is now Switzerland. The Franks settled in France. The Lombards settled in, in, in Italy. The Saxons settled in England. The Visigoths in Spain. And the three other were extinct. There's something interesting that Daniel tells that God told King Nebuchadnezzar. The last part of this verse says, this mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. You want to know what you see if you go to Denmark into the Fredericksburg Castle. As you walk into the entryway, you see the entire lineage of all the royal families in all of Europe. You see how they tried over and over and over again. The kings would marry queens. They would marry people trying to reunite Europe into one common body. And what does God say is going to happen? Are they ever going to be successful? No. In fact, um, Alexander the Great, or Napoleon, divorces his wife and marries Louise of Austria to try to unite stuff, but he fails. Napoleon was an amazing, amazing general, and he did feats that none of us could ever dream of. And as he's marching across Europe and as he's conquering things, he says, I will unite Europe under one kingdom and no one will stop me. At the Battle of Waterloo, as Napoleon, after the battle, as he's dying and as he's on his deathbed, he says, God was too much for me. What stopped Napoleon from uniting all of Europe? Was it some great army that stopped him, that stood in his way to keep him from uniting Europe? No, there was nothing. There was no cause. In fact, historians have said, we don't know why he didn't succeed. It doesn't make sense. Only God knew that it wasn't going to happen. And so as we look through Daniel chapter 2, God has given us a history of what is going to take place And 
Daniel chapter 2 lines up perfectly with the history of Europe. So what kingdom takes over the feet of iron and clay? Is there ever going to be a united Europe again? Is there ever going to be anything? If you turn, huh? The rock, that's exactly right. Daniel chapter 2 verse 43 says that it will fail if anybody tries to mix together. But if we look in Revelation chapter 17, it tells us that they're going to try to unite one more time. Europe is going to try to unite, and they're going to give power to the beast, and they're going to try to unite. And what is Europe doing right now? Europe's common flag for its common market. You want to know what it says? Hang on. Um, It says, many voices, one people. They're trying to unite themselves. They've developed the euro. They're trying to unite themselves over and over again, but they're Attempts are going to fail. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45 says, During the reign of those kings, so during the reign of the ten kings, when there's ten different, when there's division, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. This dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Daniel chapter 2 shows us that God is not only involved in history, but that he has made predictions time and time again. This is just one of many that we're going to continue to look at on how he has shown that in history he has made predictions and he is true. And the Bible tells us the test of a prophet is if 100% of their predictions is true. And so far, 100% of the predictions in the Bible have come true. God is active. He is part of our lives. And God was telling the king of the then-known world that, listen, you think you're powerful and you think you're great, but I'm the one who sets up kingdoms and who tears them down. The same God has a promise for us. Turn with me to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. That's page 636. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. All right. It says, This is the same God that told Nebuchadnezzar, that showed him the dream. It says, For I have plans, for I know the plans I have for you. Who's he talking to? Us. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. Do you guys hear that? The same God who has plans for the entire world and throughout all of history has plans for us. And his plan for us is that none of us would miss out on the kingdom of the rock. Tonight, I want to know if you'll accept a few dares. Dares of being a disciple. The first dare is, do you believe that God is in control of all history, as shown in Daniel? Can you accept the dare that God will do what he says and he will come and set up his kingdom, that he has plans for me. Will you accept the dare to get ready now, because we are living in the final stages of history. There's only one more kingdom to be set up. And this prophecy doesn't give us times when they're going to happen, so it could be tomorrow, and you don't want to miss out. 
You've been listening to The Disciple Dare from Pastor Jennifer Deans. We hope this message encouraged you as you learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you'd like to learn more about how you can take the dare, drop by ViennaSDA.org. There you'll find resources to get connected to others like yourself and to help in your spiritual journey.